More and more highly respected investors, many of them billionaires like Warren Buffett, Paul Singer, Sam Zell, and Ray Dalio, have increased their exposure to gold over the past 12 months. They've done this for many reasons, with rising inflation topping the list. So for those betting on a bright future for gold, how high can the price go? We invited money expert Mike Maloney to answer that very question at the recent Wealthion conference held in early June. Now don't worry if you missed the conference, as we're making Mike's excellent presentation available to you right now. It's only the last 50 years that we began this grand experiment where all of the world's currencies would be fiat currencies, and this experiment where we're going to run the world's reserve currency as a fiat also. And this experiment of, uh, of currencies being fiat has been tried thousands of times. It has a 100% failure rate. Hi, I'm Mike Maloney, and I want to congratulate Adam Taggart on putting together such a great set of speakers for his first Wealthion event. This is so jam-packed full of speakers, I don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to get right into it with some headlines from the previous week. Zero Hedge, Russia's uh, sovereign wealth fund dumps all dollar assets. Now, anybody that's been following me knows that I've been uh, present making presentations on the death of the global dollar standard since 2009, and this is just another one of what I call the nails in the coffin, and they're coming faster and faster these days. Now, uh, before last week, the mix that the this sovereign wealth fund had was about 35% dollars, 35% euros, and the other 30% was made up of the yen, the yuan, the British pound, and gold. And today, that mix, is, as of this week, uh, that mix is being changed. The euro is going from 35 to 40%, but uh, the, the mix that used to be just 30% now makes up 60%. And the big increases are mostly in the Chinese yuan and gold. So this is huge news. Uh, another one of the nails of the coffin in the global dollar standard. And it's just saying that there's some big changes coming. From the Wall Street Journal, Biden's budget signal to the Fed. His economists assume negative real interest rates for a decade. Now, the real interest rate is the interest rate that you're getting on short-term bonds minus, or whatever investment that you've got, that you've got an interest rate on, minus the rate of inflation. If inflation is higher than the interest rate you're getting paid, then your interest rate is actually negative. So negative real rates through 2031. So this is a, a decade-long projection that they're basing their budgets and their spending off of. So the rosier they can make this stuff, the smoke and mirrors that they use, the, uh, the, the more that they're able to justify reckless spending. Inflation will remain between 2.1 and 2.3%. That's a 0.2% band that they're going to be able to keep inflation uh, ranging between for a decade. Yeah, right. Three-month treasuries will remain below the inflation rate for 10 years. The 10-year treasury will stay below inflation through 2024, never rising above 2.8%, even as the unemployment rate hits 
3.8% in 2023 and stays there through 2031. Now, this is a bold statement. Remember this because I'm going to come back to it in a minute. So uh, in 2023, two years from now, the unemployment rate is going to go down to just 3.8% and it's going to stay there for the next eight years. That's what they're basing all of these numbers on. In other words, the White House is assuming that the Federal Reserve will maintain negative real rates of interest despite eight years of full employment. So you've got a booming economy, but you're suppressing interest rates and keeping them negative for eight years. Yet, somehow, inflation will remain contained. These are two like mutually exclusive things. There's, there's no place, at least in this universe, that these things can both happen together. Maintain negative interest rates and have full employment for eight years, a booming economy. So uh, here is the unemployment rate, and I just generated this uh, yesterday on the Federal Reserve's website. And uh, this goes back to 1948, I believe. Uh, and we're supposedly down at 6%, but they're really fudging these numbers to try and get that. Uh, there's no way that it's really down at 6%. But I want to point out that the last economic expansion, uh, 10 years and 6 months, was the longest in history. The one preceding that that was the second longest now is this one from 1992 to 2001 or 2002. Um, and what you see here is that it hit 3.8% here and then went, eventually went down to 3.5% or 3.8% here. But in order to see 3.8% again, there was April of 2000 that it hit 3.8%. And before that, you got to go all the way back into the 60s to get unemployment rates this low. So they're saying they're going to go down to the lowest rates since the 1960s and they're just going to stay there for eight years and they're basing their numbers off of this so this is the uh an update from a uh, presentation i gave called early warning back in 2018 and it's the length of the time between recessions so it's the economic expansions and it's a list that goes all the way back to 1854 so you're going back to the civil war here and I've put these in order of length, not in order of the time period. And <clears throat> what you see here is that the longest, when I gave this presentation, it was in 2018. That's the reason this says 2009 to 2018. Um, the longest one was 1991 to 4.5-years-and-this-is-where-we-were-at-the-time-and-I-said-this-is-coming-to-an-end-this-is-this-economic-expansion-is-very-long-in-the-tooth-it-cannot-go-forever-and-I-was-also-citing-the-employment-statistics
the Congressional Budget Office or the Cannabis Bogarting Optimists Projection <laughs> was, they're smoking something funny to uh, get out to this. They were projecting uh, 240 months, uh, 20 years of uh, economic expansion. Uh, so, you know, what they're projecting this time isn't going to happen either, not with the imbalances that we currently have. So uh, this is also an update from uh, the early warning, and I originally did this in 2017, a year before early warning. But I was looking at long-term interest rates and just noticed what, what appears to be a cycle, and I looked up some charts. The information gets very blocky before the year 1880, uh, but you could see that there appears to be these waves and cycles that repeat throughout history of interest rates bouncing up and down. And what I did was I took the lowest interest rates in a cycle. So when the cycle begins at the lowest, goes up to a peak and returns to the bottom. And it turned out it was the same number of months leading up to the peak as the decline into the next bottom. And you could balance an arrow perfectly on top of that. So with that, I decided I would say, you know, can I make a projection on how long this interest rate cycle is going to go by repeating the same process? And I said that somewhere between 2020 and 2023, interest rates should bottom, and then we'll see a reversal of interest rates, which traps the, uh, the government and the Treasury and the Federal Reserve. Once uh, interest rates start increasing, the refinancing of the national debt becomes very, very expensive and starts to consume more and more and more of the annual budget. So anyway, let's see where this went since. The, since I made this graph originally, this is what has happened since in the last uh, year, uh, last couple of years. Uh, so that's where we are. We're very close to what should be the end of this. There could be one more big dip left uh, but, you know, we're getting down close to zero, and this is long-term interest rates. So these are 30-year and 20-year bonds that we're talking about. We're not talking about uh, three-month bills, or we're not talking about treasury notes. We're talking about bonds. Uh, so it, it can't stay that way forever. Are we in bubbles? Well, that last chart of interest rates, when interest rates are going down, that's a, a bull market for bonds. And that went from 1980 until today. So that's one of the oldest bull markets, longest in the tooth, uh, way overvalued and severely, you know, ready, ready for a severe correction. Um, and the higher the cliff, the bigger the fall. This is PE ratios. So it's the, the price that people are paying for stocks. And this is for the S&P 500. It's the price that people are paying for stocks as a multiple of the earnings per share, the, the amount that uh, the dividends are uh, paid per share in that, or the company's earnings per share, whether they use that for expansion or dividends. But what this shows you is, you know, uh, the, the bubbles and the times when stocks are way undervalued, a super bargain, and you should be buying them. And it sort of looks like maybe 20 is fair value when you look at the uh, scale of this. But no, we have been in this insane bubble territory for this entire century. If you erase this century and you take a look at, at this 
115 years of data that goes from 1880 to 1995, what you see is that for that 115 years, about 15 was fair value. And when I got into this 20 years ago, the NASDAQ was crashing and, and there were uh, writers out there saying, of course the stock markets are crashing. The P.E. ratios were in a bubble. It was unsustainable. It was just absolutely insane. So let's bring back uh, this century and take a look at where we are today. What, what sticks out for me here is that in, 19, in 1929, we were at a P.E. ratio of 33. Today, we're up at 37 something. And so we are in a, an enormous bubble. The higher the cliff, the bigger the fall. This is the Buffett indicator. So it's the market capitalization or the value of the companies divided by GDP. Uh, this is the Federal Reserve's data. The Wilshire 5000 is another good pro proxy and you get almost exactly the same curve. There's a little bit of variation when you get into this century, but it's very, very tiny when you use the Wilshire. But anyway, we're up at 209%. The, the value of the publicly listed companies is 209% the value of the economy over a one year period. That's nuts. And uh, about 50, 60, you know, 40 to 60% is a fair value range. This goes from 87 down to 32 before we got into the craziness of uh, the 21st century. All I can say is the higher the cliff, the bigger the fall. This is the same thing, market cap U.S. equities divided by GDP. And what we have here is different data. We've got the Federal Reserve data, the Fraser Institute, the International Monetary Fund, and uh, the Wilshire indexes. And you see the same three peak uh, bubbles in this century. And then a dip down in the 80s, just like the other two charts, a rise to a, a peak in the 60s. But then this goes back to the year 1900 right there. And so what you get to see here is that fair value truly is in that area that I pointed out, 40 to 60% of the economy uh, is what the corporations that create the economy should be valued at, not 209% of the economy. Now, one of the attendees of this conference sent in a question when he signed up, and that was a few weeks ago, but I dug that question up because I haven't answered that yet in my YouTube videos, and it's, has there ever been an episode in history of hyperinflation with a reserve currency? And what I want to say is, oh, you got me. There hasn't. The answer is no. There hasn't been a hyperinflation with reserve currency. Well, how did this get started? You know, a few years ago, uh, some newsletter writer slash commentator slash monetary historian slash economist slash precious metals expert uh, said that there's never been an episode of hyperinflation with a reserve currency. And, uh, you know, when he said that, everybody took that as meaning, oh, a reserve currency cannot go into a hyperinflation because that has never happened before. Well, let's examine this a little bit. Uh, a lot of this comes from this chart right up here. This chart was put together by J.P. Morgan uh, using data from the Hong Kong Monetary Authority 
in December of 2011, and it has been repeated time after time after time and then copied by others with embellishments on the data, and then they give themselves credit after embellishing it a little bit. Um, <clears throat> but uh, this is just, it's wrong. <laughs> it's, it's bad information. Uh, it is misinformation. Um, when you, the further you go back in history, the more ambiguous that uh, everything becomes, the more vague all of the data gets. Uh, you don't have reports from a central bank. You can't make a graph on the Federal Reserve's website and get pretty accurate data from all of these uh, different treasuries and so on. Uh, so you're going back into the 1400s here. <clears throat> and th they just originally had these little boxes. Uh, then somebody drew some lines across here, and then somebody does some research on Wikipedia and puts in the number of years that they think it lasted, and then somebody else copied that. And, and, uh, but where does this notion come from? Uh, it says reserve currency status does not last forever. So this is somebody that has an agenda. They believe the same thing that I believe. I believe that the dollars, uh, that the dollar, as the uh, global dollar standard, this is going to end soon. The dollar's days as a reserve currency are numbered. But where does this uh, information come from, and and why is why do I suspect that this is misinformation and that a lot of it is actually wrong? Well. Uh, a few years ago, I put together my own version of this called Predominant and or Reserve Currencies and New Monetary Systems. And so we've got the same blocks, Portugal 80 years, Spain 110 years, Holland 80 years, France 95 years. Now, I don't know much about Portugal back then. Uh, and France, I know a little bit about. This probably shouldn't even be here. And if it is, this should be like a lot smaller or something. It wasn't like this main hub of the international monetary system with uh, all of the world's central banks holding uh, French livers or francs or whatever they had back then. Uh, but uh, here in Spain, this 110 years that they selected, this is when the conquistadors were going over to the Americas and they were murdering all of the citizens and, and absconding with their economic, with, with their economy. They were taking all of the gold and silver, taking it back to Spain, melting it down and turning it into coins. Now, everybody across all of Europe took the gold and silver coinage. It didn't matter uh, what images were on it, what country it came from. It was more trusted the more you had seen the same coin over and over again. But during this great inflation that happened in Spain, during that economic boom that they had, they started importing a lot of goods. And when you're importing goods and you're paying for it with money, gold and silver, real money, not fiat currency, uh, well, this happens whether you're paying for it with fiat currency or not. But when you're paying for it with real money, you're exporting that money and you're importing the goods. So uh, Spanish coins started flooding the world back then. And then in Holland, uh, this is because of the Dutch East India Company and the trade route going to India um, uh, caused 
a, there was a boom in Holland and they were doing the same thing. They were importing goods along this trade route with all the countries that they were dealing with. And when they do that, they're exporting their own coinage. So it becomes the predominant coinage that is circulating, the predominant currency. Uh, it's, these are not reserve currencies. None of them are reserve currencies. Back then, each country had a treasury. They would tax their citizens and take the gold and silver coins, and then they would spend them on building castles for royalty and war. That's, you know, uh, that's what the treasuries did. They had wars and they built castles. But during this period of time, there were no central banks. There was no hub of the monetary system doing international clearing and, and payments. Uh, and uh, when you take this 110 years of, of uh, Spain being the predominant currency, actually it was predominant. To, you know, a lot of the history, it depends on uh, what documents you're reading and what country they came from. Uh, with this Spanish thing, you know, the Coinage Act uh, of 1792, where the U.S. dollar was first created, it was a, specified a certain weight of silver. There was uh, uh, a weight and a purity specified, and it was a carbon copy of the Spanish mill dollar. Why? Because all the way over here in 1792, the coins that were the predominant coins circulating in the Americas was the Spanish mill dollar. So really, this went for more than 250 years. Uh, it all depends on the history that you're looking at and, and what facts you're nitpicking. But really, all of these need to be real fuzzy things that are overlapping because otherwise, it's just misinformation. Then, the world's first central bank, uh, the Bank of England, uh, now this says 98 to 104 years, all of the other ones said 105 years, I've changed this, and there's a reason. Now the Bank of England uh, was first created in 1694, way back here, but in 1816 they went on the gold standard, and then uh, when World War I broke out in 1914, they, went, they, abandoned, they suspended the gold standard. Then they went back onto it in 1925, and then they finally completely abandoned it forever in 1931. So I've created this overlap. And then all of those other charts started the USA as the world's reserve currency uh, when Great Britain stopped. I've created the overlap here. But I've got 77 to 107 years. Why? Because uh, the, the uh, Federal Reserve, the act was passed in 1913. They opened their doors for business. That was December of 1913. The Federal Reserve Act was passed. They opened their doors for business in November of 1914. And so um, from 1914 until today is 107 years. But the U.S. dollar didn't become the world's reserve currency right away. Uh, it took some, some time for that to happen, and it really happened at the Bretton Woods Conference, and that was 77 years ago, not 107 years ago. So that is when reserve currencies really started was with the Bretton Woods Conference. Back uh, during the uh, reign where Great Britain was running the uh, the international monetary system being the hub of the international gold uh, standard with settlement happening and 
uh, and gold in the basement of the Bank of England on pallets for a lot of different countries. Um, back then, other central banks didn't hold a whole lot of British consoles or German buns or U.S. bonds or uh, guilds or whatever. They didn't hold the currencies or the bonds of that country. Uh, they held gold. <laughs> most, most of the reserve currency was gold. And the same thing continued with the USA until the Bretton Woods system, and that started flooding other countries with uh, fiat, with, with currency that was denominated in, in either bonds or dollars. But then, so predominant currency status averages about a century. It isn't, it, it used to say that reserve currency status averages 94 years. Baloney. It averages somewhere around a century. But there are monetary system shifts that happened. And uh, we're at 49 years plus right now. August 15th of this year, the U.S. dollar will have been a fiat currency for 50 years. So here's the uh, classical gold standard, the intrawar gold exchange standard, the Bretton Woods system, which was one of the most stable of these. This was very stable but uh, there still were, still were a lot of conflicts of interest when it comes to banking and finance back then that were outlawed later. And then we go on to a completely fiat system globally. All currencies became, August 15th, 71, Nixon takes the dollar off of gold and almost all of the world's currencies were backed by U.S. dollars and not gold. A few of them were backed by gold, but very shortly after that, they left gold as well. So, basically, it's uh, of this 107 years, it's only the last 50 years that we began this grand experiment where all of the world's currencies would be fiat currencies, and this experiment where we're going to run the world's reserve currency as a fiat also, and this experiment of, uh, of currencies being fiat has been tried thousands of times. It has a 100% failure rate, there is no currency that you can point to that existed like, uh, you know, before World War I that had ever survived that went fiat. When they went fiat, they eventually died. And so we began this experiment only 50 years ago. So uh, let's, you know, the thing is that gold and predominant currencies, gold has been real money and predominant currency for more than 5,000 years, the predominant currency for more than 5,000 years. And it's been predominant reserve currency since central banking started. And it, it I mean, I'm going to show you a chart in a minute here. So the question, has there ever been an episode in history of hyperinflation with a reserve currency? No. Why? The reserve currencies were gold. You can't print gold. <laughs> it's that simple. Gold puts a constraint on central bankers. It puts a constraint on the economy, on government and, and central bankers. And the only way that a fiat currency can work is for a central banker to have the restraint. It, he's not constrained. He's got to have his own restraint not to add some zeros when he's typing currency into the system. You know, we used to type millions and then billions, and now we type trillions. And the, in, in, we type trillions all the time into the economy. Now, 
What is the difference between one and a trillion? 12 zeros. What is the difference between a trillion and a quadrillion? Three zeros. <laughs> so that central banker has to prevent himself from typing another zero in there or we go into hyperinflation. Now, so I, am I saying that there is going to be a hyperinflation of the US dollar, the world's reserve currency? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that it is definitely possible, though. It has been since we began this experiment 50 years ago. And so we have to watch for that. But here, Incrementum, my friend Ronnie Stoffele at Incrementum AG, uh, they put together this great chart with information from the IMF, the World Gold Council. And uh, this equals 100% of uh, central bank reserves. So all, the world's central banks, this is 100% of their reserves, and this is the mix. And here's 1971 when we went off of the, you know, the Bretton Woods system and the gold standard. But you can see it's only been, uh, I mean, it didn't pass even 50% until the late 80s. Uh, and so, you know, you've got 40 years here of this experiment where it's mostly fiat currency. Now, this ends in 2017. So um, uh, it's probably close to 90% right now, fiat currency, and only 10% gold. But you go back to 1964 when this began, began, the chart begins. Now, that's 20 years after Bretton Woods. And you can see that this was the fiat currencies were ramping up, but it was mostly gold. It was 70% gold. I bet if you go back to 1944, it's like 10 or 15% fiat currencies and uh, 85, 90% gold. So why has a, a, a reserve currency never gone into a hyperinflation? Because you can't print gold and every reserve currency or and or predominant currency has been gold in the past. That is the reason. So can a fiat currency that's a reserve currency go into a hyperinflation? Absolutely. Will it happen? Maybe. Uh, so Charles de Gaulle in the dollar crisis, February 1965, he says, we consider necessary that international trade be established as it, as it was the case before the great misfortunes of the world, which meant the world wars, on an indisputable monetary base, and one that does not bear the mark of any particular country. Which base? In truth, no one can see how one could really have any standard criterion other than gold. So when it comes to central banking, and uh, international payments and the world's reserve currency, the, the, one of the world reserve currencies around the world is still gold. I mean, Canada doesn't have any. There's a, a few countries that don't have any. But take a look at how many countries are accumulating gold current, currently, and you get an inkling of, well, uh, could they know something, something that might be up that I don't know about? Well. You know, Russia's getting rid of their dollars and they've been accumulating gold. China's been doing the same thing. So uh, if gold went up, you know, if we had a crisis and they needed to reinstill uh, trust in the system, because all banking, the more you investigate this, the more that you uh, realize that finance and banking is nothing 
but a shell game, a hat trick. It's a con game. And what a con game means is confidence game. And if you lose confidence, then the game is up. The game is over with. If, if, you're, if, if somebody is a trickster trying to dupe somebody else and steal from them, and he get, gains their confidence, that's a confidence game. And if, uh, if the person that this trick is being perpetrated on loses confidence in the trickster, then the game's up. The, the con doesn't work. And so that's what a confidence game is. And if uh, the U.S. has to back currency in circulation with the gold that it claims that it owns, Take a look at my two videos, Who Really Owns America's Gold, and you'll find out that it's actually the Federal Reserve. But whether it's the Treasury or the Federal Reserve, uh, the gold that is supposed to be American, American's gold, uh, if they had to back the currency in circulation and currently on the Fed's uh, balance sheet, that's the liability that the gold is the asset against. It's, it's uh, to back the U.S. dollar, the paper dollars that are in circulation. But today, that would be $8,240 an ounce. Then, if they had to, to reinstill confidence in the entire banking system, if banks were afraid to lend to each other, if they didn't trust the base currency that the Federal Reserve types into their accounts at the Federal Reserve, because the, the total monetary base is currency in circulation plus all of the uh, base currency, the, the bank reserves that are in the accounts that the banks have at the Federal Reserve, and it never leaves the Federal Reserve unless the bank uh, takes some of their reserves and trades them in to the Bureau of uh, Engraving and Printing and orders vault cash. When they get vault cash, they're converting bank reserves into vault cash, and then that becomes currency in circulation. So. I'm, I just made a chart yesterday, this same exact chart, except instead of being at five trillion, this now goes over six trillion. So I'm, I tried to line them up really well, and I'm going to wipe them up from top to bottom. But it used to be twenty thousand dollars an ounce. Actually, it was a little less. It was nineteen thousand eight hundred and ninety or something like that. I just rounded to twenty thousand for my last presentation. That was about ten months ago or something. And, but since then, look at what they've done to the monetary system. It's over $6 trillion now, and we're at $23,106 per ounce required to cover base currency if enough confidence was lost between the banks to where they had to use the gold to cover uh, interbank settlement. So the point of this whole presentation revolves around the two opening articles. The second opening article was about the White House's proposed budget and the fantasy fairy tale numbers that they're basing this on, which can't happen in any reality that exists in this universe. Maybe there's some parallel universe that they could exist in, but it's pretty much impossible if they did achieve this. It means that for the next decade, we are going to experience the greatest precious metals bull market in the history of mankind. If that doesn't happen, it means that scenario two has happened, which was the original article I opened up with, which was about the 
transition from the current monetary system, the global dollar standard, to some new system. So it means a complete rearrangement, the complete chaos of the breakdown and rearrangement of the monetary system, which means the precious metals won't just experience some astronomical bull market. It'll be somewhere between astronomical and infinity. So this is the performance of gold versus our proxy for the stock market, the S&P 500, for this entire century. And my question is, have you got gold? Thank you very much, and thank you, Adam, for having me. We hope you've enjoyed this excellent presentation by GoldSilver.com's Mike Maloney. If Mike's outlook for gold is inspiring you to take action, I've got a nice surprise for you. Following Mike at the June Wealthion Conference was Jeff Clark, GoldSilver.com's Senior Precious Metals Analyst. He gave an absolutely fantastic presentation about how to invest in precious metals mining companies. And within it, he shares exactly which specific stocks he's most interested in today and why. If you're interested in watching that presentation right now for free, simply go to Wealthion.com miners. And if you're at all interested in learning more about how to tap the potential power of a rising gold price in your portfolio, then Jeff's presentation, folks, is truly not to be missed. But before you go watch it, please just take one second and subscribe to this channel if you haven't already by clicking the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Because the more subscribers this channel has, the more world-class presenters we can attract on this program. All right, now that you're subscribed, Head over to watch Jeff's free presentation at Wealthion.com slash miners. Thanks for watching.